If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, turn with me to Mark chapter 15. C.S. Lewis, in an essay on miracles, writes of the Incarnation, saying, The story of the Incarnation is the story of a descent and resurrection. When I say resurrection here, I am not referring simply to the first few hours or the first few weeks of the resurrection. I'm talking of this whole huge pattern of descent, down, down, and then up again. What we ordinarily call the resurrection being just, so to speak, the point at which it turns. Think what that descent is. The coming down, not only into humanity, but into those nine months which precede human birth, in which they tell us we all recapitulate strange, prehuman, subhuman forms of life, and going lower still into being a corpse, a thing which, if this ascending movement had not begun, would presently have passed out of the organic altogether, and have gone back into the inorganic, as all corpses do. One has a picture of someone going right down and dredging the sea bottom. One has a picture of a strong man trying to lift a very big, complicated burden. He stoops down and gets himself right under it so that he himself disappears. And then he straightens his back and moves off with the whole thing swaying on his shoulders. It's a picture of what we see here as we turn to Mark chapter 15. Jesus' life has been a, a descent. He has been sinking lower and lower so he can get under the burden of our sinful humanity and lift us up again. What we see here in Mark chapter 15 is Jesus, a strong man, not just trying to lift, but actually lifting the very big, complicated burden of our sin by sinking lower. Remember John, in John's gospel, Jesus prays uh, of the glory that he had before. But we celebrate an incarnation. The, the Word became flesh and dwelt among, with, uh, dwelt among us. And before he was conceived, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, uh, was in the glories of heaven. And yet, what does Paul tell us in Philippians? He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself. He's descending. And here, as we turn to Mark chapter 15, he is nearing the bottom of his descent as he is getting under the burden of our sin. That is why he cried out in the garden, take this cup away. There is another way. Because he was coming under the awkward, cumbersome burden of our sin. Mark writes in chapter 15, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consolation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of saying many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? So how many charges, see how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. 
And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, And what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloth and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, as we celebrate your sons coming into the world, coming to save sinners, I pray that considering this text in light of his coming, that we would have a greater appreciation of why Christ has come to be the substitute for sinners, that he has come so that he could bear in his body on the tree the unbearable burden of our sins on Calvary. Pray that if there are any here this morning that have not come to know the hope, forgiveness, and healing that come from uh, that glorious truth uh, that Christ is born, the burden that we cannot bear, the burden of our sins, and he has died so that we could have full and free pardon, that today they would see that truth. For those of us who are your children, your blood-bought children, who have received the right to become your children through believing in what your Son has done for us, may we have greater joy and greater appreciation of the humiliation of your Son that he humbled himself so that we would be lifted up out of the muck and mire. And we thank you for this. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. As I said, Jesus' life is one of descent, uh, going down lower and lower. Remember, before his birth, he was not just simply the king of the Jews. He was the king of angels. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He, he wasn't simply a king. He was God. He was God before his incarnation. He is God in flesh before him. He was one to whom angels worshipped in heaven. If he had been seen with his glory here at this consolation... They would have fallen down in fear of their lives. Uh, Isaiah saw his glory and spoke. Uh, and Isaiah, when he sees the glory of the Lord, what does he say? Woe is me, I am undone. And yet Jesus is descending 
under the burden of identifying with us, suffering for us. Uh, we see the descent in the fact that uh, as he has been brought to Pilate, uh, he is being asked, Are you the king of the Jews? He is. He is the seed of David. He is the son of David who is to sit on David's throne forever. He, he is one deserving of all their respect. Just days earlier in this week, a different crowd had welcomed him, throwing their garments on the ground, waving palm branches, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now, this one who is welcomed into the city at the beginning of the week as a king is being handed over to death because he is a king. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Meaning that he has said the truth. He is the king of the Jews. And in response to that, the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But he made no further answer in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, that like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. He was silent before his accusers. He entrusted himself to the hand of a just God as he was going to Calvary, as he was going to lay down his life for our sins. He wasn't simply to die. He was going to die the death of a criminal. He's left the throne. He has no pretensions of an earthly kingdom. We know that Jesus had told his followers when they tried to defend him that if it were his father's will, he could have called on 10,000 angels to return him to the father's side. But he had humbled himself. He was in the process of humbling himself. He was in the process, as it were, uh, of sinking lower and lower. And while... uh, They would have thought it couldn't get much lower than this, a king being uh, held up to ridicule and contempt. It does get lower than that. As he stoops down under the complicated burden of our sin, we see that he takes the place of a criminal. Mark writes, now at the feast, he, he, that is Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And so there's an array of prisoners, an array of insurrectionists, Mark says, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in their insurrection. So so you have a, 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 a dossier, as it were, a list of murderous rebels ready to meet their end. And among them was Barabbas, a man called Barabbas. And don't miss the irony of his name. The name Barabbas means son of the father. So one whose name means son of the father, his life is forfeit. He's a rebel against Rome. He is on death row. 
And to earn the favor of the Jews, uh, every year Pilate would allow them one person on death row to receive pardon so that they would think of how gracious and how forgiving the Romans are. You know, rather than crucifying ten, uh, they'd crucify nine and let one go free. Verse 8, and the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Show clemency towards one. Show uh, pardon towards one. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Pilate knew that he was an innocent man. Pilate understood all throughout that the charges that were being brought to him were invented. he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Pilate was thinking maybe their envy would have an end. They would think it would be unconscionable for a murderer to be allowed to walk while an innocent man hangs. Pilate was wrong. As we understand where we're sitting, we understand that they were more than happy to allow the guilty to go free, and the innocent to suffer and die. And what we understand even better than they do, that this was the plan of God. Because apart from Christ, the innocent dying, we're not counted free. As one hymn puts it, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look upon him and pardon me. So we might think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a murderer. I haven't sinned. In the court of divine justice, if we have broken one law, we have broken them all. God's law stands as a, a totality. It's not like our law where, you know, well, uh, I, I was speeding, but at least I didn't murder. Uh, the Bible is clear, if you break one law, you've broken the law as a whole. It all stands together. We are criminals deserving of condemnation far worse than what Barabbas was facing. Barabbas faced earthly death. He faced uh, the Roman government that could only kill his body. We face the judgment of one who can destroy our body and soul in hell. So verse 11, the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Jesus is going to take Barabbas' place. See, up until this point, Jesus has not been sentenced to death. Verse 12, and Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? I have him in prison. He hasn't been sentenced for anything. He hasn't been found guilty of anything. What am I going to do with Jesus? And Jesus sinks lower. What shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. 
I'm uh, afraid that the saying familiarity breeds contempt is very true when it comes to considering the cross. Mark is writing uh, for primarily a, a Roman audience, primarily a Gentile audience in the Roman Empire. See, you and I, when we think of the cross, we, we think of the decoration like there, or you might have a cross necklace. When Mark's audience thinks of the cross, what they think of is the most heinous form of capital punishment that has ever been invented. Mark is writing of a form of punishment so heinous that it was reserved for the worst offenders. It, it was such a heinous punishment that Roman law dictated that this form of capital punishment could not be used on Roman citizens. Roman citizens were encouraged because of the heinous, awful realities of the cross that they were not even to think about it. It was something that they were to put out of their mind because of how horrid it was. See, to be sentenced upon the cross, for them to call out for his crucifixion was for them to call out for him to be treated as the lowest and the worst offender. There was no worse punishment. There was none. What, what, what they're saying is, that we want Jesus to be treated as the most vile human being our society has. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? Well, they shouted all the more, crucify him. Why? We don't care. Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now that scourging, uh, if you've seen The Passion of Christ, you know it's a, when they would use a, a whip with many lashes with embedded pieces of bone and metal in it so it would rip and flay the flesh. Uh, again, we live in a very genteel society. But we can't even begin to comprehend uh, just even this punishment. See, Pilate is still trying to get off. So he scourges them, hoping that, that would be enough. Uh, that's not enough. And so he delivers him to be crucified. He's being crucified because, as Lewis points out, Jesus is the strong man. He, he's in control of this whole situation. See, we have to forget, we seem to forget sometimes, especially others who diminish that this was the plan of God. Jesus was in control. There, there was never a moment in this farce of a trial that he was not in control. He was in control of himself. Jesus in the Gospel of John, would, uh, in anticipation of his death, would say, this is why my Father loves me, because I lay down my life for my sheep. 
and I take it up again. It wasn't the soldiers. It wasn't the beatings. It wasn't the threat of punishment that held them in place. It was his desire to dive deep down under the complicated burden of our sin to stoop down under it and lift us up out of the mire. That is why he was there. Why did he have to sink to such lows of being in the place of Barabbas? Why did he have to stand in the place of one of the most awful offenders of his day? It's because he had to stoop under the burden of our sin. He had to stoop under to lift us up with him. And Mark continues. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. All those people gathered together, gathered together for one purpose, torture him. Usually this is about 600 men. So 600 people are gathered together not to make a ridicule and a mockery of the other prisoners who are going to face their death but to focus all their animosity and hatred upon Jesus. Sinks lower still. Not only is he in the place of Barabbas, but he's going to face even greater torment, greater anguish than even Barabbas would have faced. If Barabbas were going to die, they would have beat him, given him his cross, nailed him to his cross with the other insurrectionist on the right and left, and called it a day. Because he is the king of the Jews, because he has humbled himself to the point of death, his humility would go even to greater extent. They clothed him in a purple cloak. A purple, the color of royalty, the color reserved for Caesar. They do it in mockery. He's bleeding out. He's been scourged. So they put the cloth on him. Now, remember what cloth does when you've been bleeding. Anyone ever have a bandage where the bandage is adhered to a wound and it's all dried? We'll think about that when we get later on. And they twist together, not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorn. And they put it on him and they begin saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews! 600 men all taking part in this. Nailing a crown of thorns on his head. Hitting him in the head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling with, down to him as in homage. Mocking him. L- Lewis in his essay on miracles puts it a different way. One can also picture a diver stripping off garment after garment, making himself naked, then flashing for a moment in the air, and then down through the green and warm and sunlit water into the pitch black cold freezing water, down into the mud and slime, then up again, his lungs almost bursting, back again to the green and warm and 
sunlit water, and then at last out in the sunshine, holding in his hand the dripping thing he went down to get. Here as Jesus is going through his torment, he is diving into the mud and slime of humanity. He is sinking into uh, a picture of the depths of depravity. Because apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we, just as much as they, could have done the same things. Holding him up to open contempt. See, as Lewis said, that that thing is human nature. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. He humbled himself. He's sinking lower into the depths of darkness. Darkness, the light of the world, sinking into the darkness. But the glorious truth of Christmas and the joyous truth of the Christian life is, uh, as John tells us, light is shined in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Yes, the burden of sin, the burden of redemption is indeed a big and complicated burden, and uh, it requires Jesus to go so low that our minds and hearts cannot even comprehend it, and yet there he is, sinking as one hymn writer says it, bearing shame, scoffing rude. When they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak. I mean, just imagine if your back was lashed uh, with fresh wounds and somebody puts a cloth on it, and just as it's starting to scab up and attach to the fabric, right off. They stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. That's what the Christmas story is getting at. I, I told them in Sunday school. Now, uh, many in our secular culture, they might not necessarily have a problem with what we have there in front of us. You know, little baby Jesus lying in a manger. Uh, there are even non-Christians that are okay with that. You know, oh, look, you know, isn't that sweet? See, the challenge is when we remember what it was all for. See, that was the beginning of the descent. He was born a child and he had a king. He was born to die and set us free. His life, his earthly life is one of descent as he sinks lower and lower and lower so he can get under the burden of our sin and rise up so that he could save us. C.S. Lewis continues, it sounds startling but I believe it can be fully justified. Now, as soon as you thought of this, this pattern of the huge dive down to the bottom into the depths of the universe and coming up again into the light, everyone will see at once how that is imitated and echoed by the principles of nature, the natural world. The descent of the seed into the soil and it's rising again in the plants. There are also all sorts of things in our own spiritual life where a thing has to be killed and broken in order that it may become bright and strong and splendid. 
The analogy is obvious. In that sense, the doctrine fits in very well. So well, in fact, that immediately there comes the suspicion is not fitting in a great deal too well. In other words, does not the Christian story show this pattern of dissent and reassent because this is part of all the natural religions of the world? And the answer is no. Uh, we see dissent in the world. What does Jesus say before uh, he, his death in the Gospel of John? Unless a grain of wheat falls and dies, it abideth alone. But if it falls and dies, it brings forth great fruit. He has to fall, he has to sink lower and lower, he has to be buried in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights so that something bright and strong and splendid could come of it. That's the Christmas story, the descent of the sun. And I tell you, if you're not a believer, if you're still in your sin, the glorious truth is that whatever your sin, whatever your issue is in life, it, Jesus has come under the complicated burden that you bear right now so that you wouldn't have to bear it. See, I tell you right now, if you're not a Christian, you are carrying a burden that's going to pull you deeper and deeper and you're not going to rise again. Uh, unless Christ has come under the complicated, the big and complicated burden of your sin on Calvary, that sin will pull you down for all of eternity, pulling you further and further away from God for all of eternity, causing you torment and anguish for all of eternity. E e there are two things uh, that are true. Either you will bear your burden for all of eternity, or Jesus will have borne the burden for you on Calvary. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. He, he's come under the mess and the burden to pull us out. And I tell you, whatever mess and muck and darkness mark your life, Jesus has already done all that is necessary to pluck you up out of it. If you're a believer... He's already done this for you. You've already accepted it. And so whatever you wrestle with and deal with right now, He has you. He's ascending. Your head is in heaven. As Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, He has raised us and seated us in the heavenlies because our Christ who is our head is risen and ascended. And so whatever dark and hard things come in your life, you know because the crucifixion isn't the end of the story, resurrection is, because of that you know that all the dark and hard broken things in your life will indeed bring something that is bright and strong and splendid. So as we come to this time of invitation, I ask you, is Jesus the one who is born your burden on Calvary's hill. Have you accepted that? But because unless you accept what he has done for you, you're holding on to what you cannot carry. You're like a man in a shipwreck trying to pull a piano up from the bottom, trying to pull a weight down, a dumbbell up with you. It'll pull you down. The only thing that you can do is hand it over to the one who has 
come under the immensity of our sin in our place, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And because of that, God has highly exalted him, giving them, him the name that is above every name. And because of that, you should worship him right now. The invitation for you is to look upon him and love him and worship him. Believer, the invitation is the same for you. Because he has come under the complicated burden of your sin and pulled you to the top with him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the humility of your son taking not just the place of Barabbas, but our place, standing condemned for us, bearing the awful weight of our sin so that we could rise with him into newness of life. I pray that if there are any in here this morning that have not trusted in him, that are trying to uh, flounder with their own sin upon their backs, that they would give that burden to Christ and accept the free pardon that has been made possible through his humiliation in our place. For us as believers, I pray that we would draw great encouragement from this, knowing uh, that out of uh, the broken areas of life come something beautiful because of what your Son has done for us. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.